Our text is Isaiah chapter 2, beginning in Isaiah 2 verse 6 actually. But we're going to jump into the middle of our text just to begin. And that is verses uh, chapter 3, verses 13 and 14. And we read there these words. The Lord has taken His place to contend. He stands to judge peoples. The Lord will enter into judgment. We are given in this text a sort of prophetic glimpse into the court of heaven. And God is on His holy throne. And surrounding that heavenly bench are the angelic guardians. And on trial before that holy tribunal are sinful men. In the people of Israel, uh, sinners stand, as it were, in this prophetic vision before the judgment of God Himself and are held to account for their sins and for their rebellion against Him. And this is, in fact, a sobering scene. This is a sobering passage. And if we were a certain kind of church or we were given to a certain way of handling the Bible, we would only go to those passages that seem bright and cheery and uh, make us sort of feel better about ourselves. But I want to try to communicate to you that the glories of Jesus Christ and what He has done for us on the cross will only be magnified when we see ourselves as we truly are, sinful and condemned before the holy judgment seat of Christ. So, let us hear what the Lord has for us in this text. And this is a sobering passage because it's not just about a temporal judgment in time of the people of ancient Israel. It was a foreshadowing, a preview, if you will, of the eternal final judgment when God stands at the end of time to judge all of humanity and everyone's fate is eternally sealed. And I want to just remind you, friends, listen, that one day you and I and everyone on this planet will stand before the throne of the Almighty. That day is inevitably coming. People can dismiss it as fiction. They can push it to the backs of their minds and fill up their entire lives with frivolity and, and trips and fun and, and whatever they can fill it with, but it will not change the fact that that's where this whole world is headed. God, the judge of all the universe, will settle every score. He'll make every wrong right. Every last one. And I have the responsibility from God to put that before you today and to, to be the voice of warning that we may be delivered and saved in that final day. And it has been my prayer that this sermon would be the means that God uses to save and to keep those who are His. Here we have a glimpse of that day so that we may be ready. 
so that that day would not overtake us like a thief in the night. Isaiah begins this section in this prophecy under inspiration of the Holy Spirit as himself being a kind of witness for the prosecution in the courtroom of heaven. And he's presenting to God reasons that God should reject and judge the people of Israel. And the reasons can be summarized this way, that these people are full of ungodliness. Their their ungodliness has reached the brim, and now it is time for the wrath and judgment of God. This is the key word, this idea of being full of ungodliness in verses 2 through 6. Let us begin here together. He says, For you have rejected your people, the house of Jacob, because they are full of things from the east and of fortune-tellers like the Philistines, and they strike hands with the children of foreigners. Their land is filled with silver and gold, and there is no end to their treasures. Their land is filled with horses, and there is no end to their chariots. Their land is filled with idols. They bow down to the work of their hands, to what their own fingers have made. So man is humbled, and each one is brought low. Do not forgive them. These people are full of ungodliness. They're full of worldliness, verse 6, the end of the verse. They have adopted the ways of their pagan neighbors to the east over in Chaldea. They've adopted those same ways themselves. They've looked to the west to the Philistines and they have become just as bad as their neighbors to the west. They strike hands, that is they join in partnership and marriages with all of the foreign peoples around them, which was, of course, you know, specifically condemned in the law. And that is not because that is not about race. It was about religion. It was about what they should value, what they believe, their worldview, their worship. How can two walk together unless they be what? Unless they be agreed, right? Bad company ruins good morals. And that's exactly what happened with the people of Israel as they intermarried and made partnerships with all of the nations around them to the east and to the west. This had just filled up this land with ungodliness. And I, and I wanted to stop and just ask you, you young people here, who your companions are. The Bible is very concerned that God's people have godly companions, make godly relationships, enter into godly marriages. The one who walks with wise men will be wise, but a companion of fools will be destroyed. The people of Israel were led astray with the sin of Balaam marrying into all of the other nations and adopting their gods and their ways and their thinking and their lifestyles. And it had corrupted, it had filled this land, it polluted them all the way to the brim. Adults, what is your thinking influenced by the most? By by the words of God or by 
the, th- the thinking of the world around you, it is so easy, even as God's people, to begin to subtly just adopt the mindset of the world. And that was exactly Israel's problem. God would should bring judgment upon them because they had filled their land up with worldliness and they, they were full of wealth. Verse 7, the beginning of the verse. There is no end to their treasures. They had amassed for themselves great fortunes, those who were rich in the land. And of course, wealth itself is not, is not evil. Wealth is a gift, but it is a great evil if that wealth is obtained outside of God's will or if it is consumed upon our own fleshly desires or if we look to it for our security and our greatest joy rather than to God, the giver. Uh, it, it takes what's good and makes it ultimate. It turns the gift into a God. And that's exactly what had happened with so many of the Israelites in that day. The love of money, the Scripture says, is a root of all kinds of evil. And of course, it's no less true in our day. Men and women love money and what money can do for them and what they think money can provide in some sort of ultimate sense, what they hope for. Israel was filled with wealth. They were full of warfare, the end of verse 7. They had amassed the instruments of warfare, horses and chariots. Once again, of course, war is not necessarily evil. God makes war. War is a necessity, is the necessity of justice in a fallen world. But Israel's sin was that they were not trusting in the Lord, but in the arm of the flesh, making foreign military alliances with the nations around them that God had forbidden. And when people feel secure in their wealth or in their might, the temptation is strong to believe themselves to be self-sufficient. And of course, that's why the Bible says so often that it's the poor and the weak who call upon the Lord and find help and grace from the Lord. These people were filled with wealth and worldliness, with warfare, with idolatry. Verse 8, the beginning of the verse, they had a land full of idols, wood and stone. But nevertheless, these, these wooden images that they made, these stone images were considered, of course, by the people to be kind of hosts for the gods. And the truth is that whenever men worship creation, um, uh, that that actually happens in a sense. First Corinthians chapter 10 says, we know that an idol itself is nothing. But he goes on to say that anywhere people are willing to trust and give their ultimate allegiance to some created thing that demons will gladly receive their allegiance. The truth is that anything that we idolize rather than God becomes a kind of host through which we become ensnared by the devils. Don't dismiss that. The the, the Satan literally gets a, a hold on people in a spiritual sense 
whenever they worship the creation rather than the creator. This is why Paul says that covetousness is what? It's idolatry, right? There isn't, there are, there are, there is an evil spiritual presence behind the love of these created things, the commitment to these created things. When people open themselves to uh, to these things, the devil really gets a true spiritual hold on their lives. So for all of these reasons, the Isaiah says, the Lord has condemned them. Their, their land is full of iniquity and ungodliness. And verse 9, he concludes by saying that the people have humbled or you might say they've humiliated themselves by all of these sins and they should not be forgiven. He literally prays, do not forgive them. A kind of prayer of imprecation, we call it. We read some of these in the Psalms, right? And um, these are hard passages in the Bible for a lot of us to to really enter into. Um these prayers for judgment, but the Bible actually holds them up as examples of of godly praying. And while it is hard for us to fully appreciate as fallen creatures, I want to remind you, friends, that there is something right and good, in fact, about God's display of His justice. In a fallen, broken, evil, sinful world, whenever justice breaks through and things are set right, God's people say, Amen, let it be so. To the praise of God's glory. And the eternal judgment of the wicked is something that the Scriptures, in fact, do give praises to God for. Now, beginning in chapter 2, verse 10, Isaiah turns from speaking to God to speaking to the people and addressing the people about the nature of God's coming retribution upon them for their sins in order that they might hopefully repent of their sin. All of this is intended by God, of course, to to bring His people to repentance. We saw that in Second Peter, right? God's intent is to bring His people to repentance. Uh, so we have these this description beginning in verse number ten. Uh, follow along with me, if you will. Isaiah says to the people, "Enter into the rock and hide from uh, hide in the dust from before the terror of the Lord and from the splendor of His Majesty, the haughty looks of man." shall be brought low, and the lofty pride of men shall be humbled, and the Lord alone will be exalted in that day. For the Lord of hosts has a day against all that is proud and lofty, against that all that is lifted up, and it shall be brought low. Against all the cedars of Lebanon, lofty and lifted up against all of the oaks of Bashan, against all of the lofty mountains, against all of the uplifted hills, against every high tower and against every fortified wall, against all the ships of Tarshish and against all the beautiful craft. All of the haughtiness of man shall be humbled and the lofty pride of men shall be brought low and the Lord alone will be exalted in that day. 
There is a day coming when those who are proud in their sinful humiliations will actually be humbled by God. And in that day, it will be a day of great reversals when those who are proud, when those who are lifted up are brought low. And when God, who has been publicly dismissed and and ignored and rebelled against, will now be clearly and, and, and indisputably exalted above all. The Lord is going to have his day, right? That's what we see in this text. As as verse 12 says, the Lord of hosts has a day against all that is proud and lofty. Or verse 11, he will be exalted in that day. Or verse 17, the end of the verse, the Lord alone will be exalted in that day. Friends, I'm preaching to you about a day. A day that comes upon sinful people. This is the first reference in the biblical canon to what is known as the day of the Lord. The day of the Lord. Yom Yahweh. The Greek translation has it as Hemera Kuriu, which is a little bit different construction than the phrase, the Lord's day, which refers to a day uniquely belonging to the Lord, namely the first day of the week. This phrase, the day of the Lord, refers to a time when God's sovereignty is put on grand display. The day of the Lord is a time when God's sovereignty is put on grand display. Because the truth is, a lot of times people don't believe or ignore the fact or live like it's not true that God is actually sovereign, that God is in control, that God is uh, on His throne, that He is ruling and reigning the world. Uh, But the truth is that God breaks through in His day in order to manifest His sovereignty. We say of some great person that he really had his day. Or we, when some things are going really well for us, we might say, well, this is my day, right? That's what the Bible is, has in mind when it speaks of the day of the Lord. I mean, the nations, they might have their day. They might have their moment in the sun. God gives them, he, he orchestrates the bounds of their habitations and the times and seasons of their prosperity, but the Lord will have His day. And Isaiah says that the proud have been belittling God and boasting in their sin, but the Lord will have His day over them. And ultimately, this is a reference to the great and final day of the Lord. That is the day at the end of time when all evil is eternally punished under the righteous judgment of God, when righteousness is ultimately vindicated and rewarded in the last day. That's the day I'm I'm pointing us all to. But the, the scripture also reveals that there are many sort of penultimate days of the Lord. That is when the ultimate day of the Lord that is coming 
breaks into history when God sort of pulls back the veil so that we can see clearly what is true in heaven and what will be true on earth, God pulls back the veil and he manifests his sovereignty and he brings the mighty low and he vindicates those who wait upon him. That is the day of the Lord. Isaiah explicitly refers to the day of the Lord in chapter 13. We'll see it as we go along, verses 6 and 9. But after being introduced here as the Lord has a day, it's most often referred to just as that day. You see that over and over again. That's the, that's the most frequent reference to the Lord's day. When you read in the Bible, in that day, you think the day of the Lord whether it's a reference, of course, to the ultimate day of the Lord or having or, or looking at that ultimate day of the Lord through its, its earthly manifestations in preview. It is with that in mind. There is a day coming, the day of the Lord, and it is a big theme in the Bible. Um, there are around 60 references by my count this week, which is kind of a quick count, I will say, but about 60 references in all to the day of the Lord in the book of Isaiah, all but five of them in the first 40 chapters, actually. Seven of them in our text here this morning. There are explicit references to the day of the Lord in the prophets Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Amos, Joel, Obadiah, Zephaniah, Malachi, as well as in the books of Acts, 1 Corinthians, 1 Thessalonians, 2 Thessalonians, and 2 Peter, which we read a little bit earlier. This is, as I say, a huge theme in the Bible. God does not want us to miss this concept of the day of the Lord that is described throughout the book of Isaiah in different ways. For example, in chapter 10, verse 3, that day is described as, quote, the day of punishment. In chapter 13, verse 13, it's described as the day of God's judgment. In 30, chapter 30, verse 25, it's described as the day of a great slaughter. And in chapter 34, verse 8, it's described as a day of vengeance. But in chapter 49, verse 8, it's also described as a day of salvation for the faithful persecuted of God's people. And chapter 61, verse 2, shows these two things coming right together in the day of God's, um, in, 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 in the Lord's day, in the, in the day of the Lord. And it says, quote, the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God. So there is a there are sort of two sides to the day of the Lord, right? It will be a day when God makes all wrongs right. And if you're on the side of wrong, that's the most fearful thing you can imagine. If you're on the side of the right, then you're finally vindicated and blessed and rewarded. So this is the day of the Lord. Isaiah is predicting a day when God would exact vengeance on sinful Judah and Jerusalem, when he would vindicate Isaiah's own message and, and the faith of those who received his words and believed them as the word of God. 
So Isaiah is arguing in this passage for what that day will be like in the hopes that these people will repent. Uh, That's what it ought to have led them to. Why should they repent? Because in that day, idols will do them no good at all. Verse 18. Would you take a look at, again, the text with me? Isaiah 3, or 2, verse 18. And the idols shall utterly pass away, and people shall enter the caves of the rocks and the holes of the ground from before the terror of the Lord and from the splendor of His majesty when He rises to terrify the earth. In that day, mankind will cast away their idols of silver and their idols of gold, which they made for themselves to worship. They will cast them away to the moles and to the bats to enter the caverns of the rocks and the clefts of the cliffs from before the terror of the Lord and the splendor of His majesty when He comes to terrify the earth. In that day, the idol worshipers will go from their high places into the holes and the rocks in the ground, into the caves of the earth. They will realize that their gods cannot do anything. Their gods are utterly impotent in the day of the Lord. And that is the way it always is and will be in the day of the Lord. The things that humans trust in, the things that humans rely on, whether it's the almighty dollar or a nation's great military might or the power of science and technology and medicine, in in those days all of it will be brought low under the sovereign judgment of God. We are a lot more fragile than we think. There are no idols of the earth that will be able to help anyone in the day of the Lord. Not only will the idols be worthless, but trusting in any other people will be worthless. Verse 22, stop regarding man. Verse Chapter 2, verse 22. Stop regarding man in whose nostrils is breath, for of what account is he? And of course, shortly after Isaiah's day, God judged Jerusalem, Judah and Jerusalem, by means of the invading Babylonian armies. This came about in 587, 586 B.C. They besieged the city of Jerusalem for between a year and two years. They were surrounding that people that the nation of Israel, Judah, made alliances with powerful kings and surrounding nations, but in the end, all of it proved to be empty. Your, your God says you're trusting in men in whose nostrils I breathe the breath of life, and you're standing against the one who breathes, the one who gave life, the one who can take it away. There are no great men in the day of the Lord. There are only small and weak human beings falling before the throne of the sovereign. In that day, he says, God will impoverish the lofty. He would bring upon them material poverty. Take a look in chapter 3 now, verse 1. 
For behold, the Lord of hosts is taking away from Jerusalem and from Judah support and supply, all support of bread and all support of water. He would bring material poverty to them. In fact, under the siege uh, in, in 587, uh, that, that, that lasted all of those, all of those months and years, uh, the people would, it said, resort to cannibalism, actually. They became so destitute and so hungry. I mean, it's like, this is, these are things we can't imagine as, you know, modern, happy, uh, well-fed Americans. If we could remember that this is been a reality in the history of the world so many times, we might get a, a little bit of an earthly glimpse of what it means to stand under judgment in the day of the Lord. For, for a person to eat their fellow man out of absolute desperation. Uh, this is divine. This is what it's like to be under divine judgment. Material poverty. And, and the day of the Lord would also bring military poverty. Verse 2. The Lord would take away the mighty man and the soldier. Verse 3. The captain of 50 and the man of rank. Military poverty. The Lord would bring political and religious poverty. Verse 2, the end of the verse is He would take away the diviner and the elder. In fact, they would be so hurting by the end for, for uh, qualified leaders that verse 4, Isaiah through God, God through Isaiah says, I will make boys their princes and infants will rule over them. For a man will take hold of his brother in the house of his father and say, you have a cloak, you be our leader. And this heap of ruins shall be under your rule. In that day he will speak out saying, I will not be a healer. In my house there is neither bread nor cloak. You shall not make me leader of the people. In other words, by the end, uh, God would bring such judgment upon them. And he did that, that Israel's leadership, uh, by the time he manifests this sort of earthly uh, example of the day of the Lord in, in his judgment upon Judah. By the end, their leadership would be an absolute sham. The day of the Lord would bring scientific and intellectual poverty. The end of verse 3, they would suffer the loss of the counselor and the skillful magician and the expert in charms. They would suffer social poverty. Verse 5, the people will oppress one another, everyone his fellow and everyone his neighbor. The youth shall be insolent to the elder and the despised to the honorable. Under the incredible judgment of God, even the social structures would break down as each person became more and more desperate to survive. And finally, Isaiah circles back around to the reasons for God's judgment of Israel. If you notice verse 8, you see the word because there. And again in verse 16, the word because. Once again to identify the reasons for his judgment of Israel. This time he addresses Israel as a third party, speaking um, 
or, or, he, or Isaiah addresses a third party, uh, speaking about Israel, uh, as it were addressing the witnesses who are observing these court proceedings in heaven. And he says, first of all, that they w- are being judged because of their defiant ways. Verse number 8, chapter 3, verse 8. Follow along. For, the, for Jerusalem has stumbled and Judah has fallen because... Because their speech and their deeds are against the Lord, defying His glorious presence. For the look on their faces bears witness against them. They proclaim their sin like Sodom. They do not hide it. Woe to them, for they have brought evil on themselves. Remember, of course, the history of the city of Sodom, the sin of Sodom was open, was flagrant, was unrepentant. Things that it is a shame to speak about, even in secret, they carried on openly and publicly and unashamedly. Like the pride celebrations in our own day, they gloried in their ungodliness. They were brazen about it. So it was in Isaiah's day. The Israel of Isaiah's day were openly rebellious, many of them, against the God of heaven, publicly worshiping false gods in the highest places of the land. And I want to remind you by this, okay? I want to remind you by this, that the day of the Lord does not come upon those who are struggling with sin and fighting their sinfulness and falling and looking to Christ and repenting and growing. And those kinds of people are, are, are not in view here. The day of the Lord is not... I'm not speaking to shake uh, the the hearts of any who are, are struggling with sin and struggling to believe God's promises and failing and trusting and repenting. These are people who are defiant. They're open. They're brazen in their sin. But I do want, I do want to warn you to beware that you do not become hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. And so in the end, prove to be an unbeliever, unrepentant in your sin. And I, and I have, I have, uh, pastored long enough now, and you've, you've been around people long enough, I'm sure, to have seen people who once named the name of Christ, and who now are living openly and brazenly and unrepentantly in sin. So, may this sermon be the means that God uses to keep you back from ever getting to that point. Friend, keep your heart tender toward the Lord. Be quick to repent. Be fast to run to Jesus. These people had come to the point where where many of them were defiant. And so God's wrath should justly fall upon them. Secondly, because their judgment is a reaping of what they have continually sown. He says in verse 10, Tell the righteous 
Tell the righteous that it will be well with them, for they shall eat the fruit of their deeds. But woe to the wicked, it shall be ill with them, for what his hands have dealt out shall be done to him. Friends, do not be deceived. God is not mocked. Whatever a man sows, he will reap. Do not deceive yourself. You cannot sow to the wind without reaping the whirlwind. Whatever a man sows, he will reap in the day of the Lord when he brings that man's wages upon his own head. And in particular, the Lord was going to bring his judgment upon the heads of the leaders of Israel's people. Which is a sobering reminder that any of us who are called to any positions of leadership, whether in our homes or in the church, that we have a, a particularly heavy responsibility. Whether we're a parent, a father, a deacon, a pastor, he says in here that their judgment, the judgment of God would fall upon the leaders. Verse 12, my people, infants are your oppressors and women rule over them. Oh, my people, your guides mislead you. They have swallowed up the course of your paths. The Lord has taken his place to contend. He stands to judge the peoples. The Lord will enter into judgment with the elders and princes of his people. It is you who have devoured the vineyard, speaking of Israel, and the spoil of the poor is in your houses. What do you mean by crushing my people, by grinding the face of the poor, declares the Lord of hosts. Now it will be their turn to be crushed and to be devoured, these so-called shepherds of the people of God. As God says to them through the prophet Ezekiel, I will require my sheep at your hand. And the day of the Lord was about to break upon the leadership of that people, the spiritual and political leadership of that place, because of all of their rebellion and their open, brazen sin against God. And, and thirdly, in this section, you have the fact that these people are being judged because of the boldness of their spiritual harlotry. There are references here to the citizens of Jerusalem as the daughters of Zion. Right? It's talking about the people of the city using the imagery of a daughter who has given herself over to prostitution. Chapter 3, verse 16. Would you take a look with me? For the Lord said, because the daughters of Zion are haughty, and walk with outstretched necks, glancing wantonly with their eyes, mincing along as they go, tinkling with their feet. Therefore the Lord will strike with a scab the heads of the daughters of Zion, and the Lord will lay bare their secret parts. In that day the Lord will take away the finery of the anklets, the headbands, the crescents, the pendants, the bracelets, the scarves, the headdresses, the armlets, the sashes, the perfume boxes, and the amulets, the signet rings and the nose rings, the festal robes, the mantles, the cloaks, and the handbags, 
the mirrors and the linen garments, the turbans and the veils. Instead of perfume, there will be rottenness. Instead of a belt, a rope. Instead of well-set hair, baldness. Instead of a rich robe, a skirt of sackcloth and branding instead of beauty. Your men shall fall by the sword and your mighty men in battle and her gates shall lament and mourn. Empty she shall sit on the ground and seven women shall take hold of one man in that day saying, we will eat our own bread and wear our own clothes. Only let us be called by your name. Take away our reproach. The once proud spiritual prostitute Israel who put herself out to all of the nations of the earth, all of the gods of the surrounding nations, will now be shaved and branded as a harlot. Left destitute by her God and by all her so-called lovers. Left desperate to for someone to make an honest woman out of her. That's the picture of the judgment of God upon the nation of Israel in the day of the Lord. And that is, of course, literally what happened to the wife of the prophet Hosea. Remember that story. And all of this is pointing to God's judgment upon a people who persist in sin, proudly persist in sin. Friends, there is a difference between stumbling as a believer, and sinning with a high hand. Shaking your fist, as it were, in the face of God and saying, I'm going to do what I want to do. I'm going to live the way I want to. I'm going to believe what I think is right. I will rule my own life. That kind of sin, that kind of pride will come under the wrath of God. Mark my words, it will come under the wrath of God in the great and final day of the Lord, if not before. And you know, I can't help but but see that sometimes for individuals who have shaken their fist in the face of God, that sometimes that final day of the Lord breaks into their life even now. And God brings all of that pride and all of the things that they hoped in and trust in crashing around them. Whether that happens now, or whether God gives them over to a reprobate mind to more and more ungodliness, that all of that ungodliness will come under the righteous wrath of God, and it rightly should. The oppression of Israel by all of the neighboring powers culminating in the destruction of Jerusalem or later in the destruction of the Jerusalem by the Romans in 70 AD. All of these are kind of previews of the final judgment of all mankind at the end of time. What the Bible calls the great and awesome or terrible day of the Lord. That day, friends, is what what we're called to see by God this morning by looking at this historical expression of it ever ever so much on the surface. 
we're called to look beyond that to the great day when God brings all things into eternal judgment. That day that is described in 2 Thessalonians chapter 1 as a day or a time when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with His mighty angels in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. They will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of His might when He comes on that day to be glorified in His saints and to be marveled at among all who have believed. That day is coming. And just as surely as destruction came upon that ancient people of Israel, destruction will come upon the face of the whole earth as humans continue in their rebellion and proud defiance of God and His ways. And this is a hard doctrine for so many, the doctrine of eternal punishment. And it is hard, maybe because we are not thinking very deeply. Uh, we are thinking only sentimentally, I don't know. Uh, it, it, is, it is a right and good doctrine. I want you to consider all of the evil in the world. Even the most hardened person to the doctrine of eternal punishment finds in his mind some place where he says, now that really ought to be punished. Now he may look at himself and say, no, I don't deserve it. But, but there is in, in everyone across the globe a sense that that wrong needs to be made right. That it, it, it should get what it deserves. There is great evil in the world. And consider also that God is perfectly holy and good. And to sin against this most perfect, holy and good of all beings, no matter what that sin is, to sin against that being is a sin that deserves the wrath of God. For the, for the culpability of the sin is measured by the one who is sinned against. And consider that some people say, well, what about those people that are good people, that are trying their best, that are just, you know, doing the best they can, they're seeking after God, they're you know, they're just, they're kind of lost, but, you know, they're good people. And we have to side again with the scriptures and say that in, in the, the deepest sense, that person doesn't exist. Because the Bible says that there is none who seeks after God. That even the veneer of morality and religion that many people do have is a cloak of sinfulness against the holy and righteous God. The Scripture teaches that sinners will not all be punished to the same degree. Some receive few, some receive many stripes, but that every sin will, in the day of the Lord, get what it deserves. 
it will be a time of eternal judgment. And it's coming. I don't know if it'll be this year or ten years or a hundred or a thousand years. But I am by this text called to in the in on behalf of the Lord Jesus Christ to warn you of that day, that day of eternal judgment, but also to remind you who are waiting on the Lord with faith that it is a time of deliverance and of vindication of God's people. And that is that is part of the glory of the day of the Lord because there are right now many of your Christian brothers and sisters around this world who are being persecuted, who are being imprisoned, and who are being tortured and killed. And that's not just true today. It's been true for centuries upon centuries. The blood of innocent Christian people has been laid up before the throne of God, ready to be upturned and poured down in a fire of fury upon all who have sinned so flagrantly. Friends, do you realize that there are Christian people who have been burned alive for the sake of the Lord Jesus Christ? That there are families who've been separated, whose children have been killed in front of their eyes, and whose fathers have been killed in front of the children. The Lord, in the day of the Lord, answers that question that Christians have have voiced for all of the ages. How long, O Lord? How long? All of heaven searches for one who is worthy to carry out judgment upon humanity. And this is where the tension comes in because none of us, we all feel like we kind of should be under that judgment because we all feel the guilt of our sin. So we search high and low in all of heaven and there is none found to open the seals and and break the scroll and pour out the judgment upon the evil that's in our world until one rises to the surface, till one comes to the front, and that is the Lamb of God, the Lord Jesus Christ, the Lion of the tribe of Judah. And He will bring justice upon this world as far as the east is from the west. He will cover this world with justice and righteousness in the great day of the Lord, when He is revealed in His glory, all wrong will be judged and all of the believers who have suffered will be publicly vindicated and rewarded and they will rule and reign with Christ over all things. The truth is, they've already, they're already in that position in the heavenly realms But in that day, that rule and reign of the saints over all things will become visible and public when the Lord Jesus Christ sits upon His throne. One final thing. If the day of the Lord brings perfect justice, then where does that leave any of us? Because as I said, none of us stands here saying, well, everybody gets what they deserve, so what do I deserve? I'm in trouble. Because in my flesh, I deserve nothing. There is only sin and evil in my flesh. But I want to remind you that the day of the Lord has already happened, in a sense, 
for all of those who are in Christ by faith. The New Testament, in fact, alludes to this by teaching that in fulfillment of the Old Testament predictions of Malachi and others, that John the Baptist's ministry prepared the way for the day of the Lord that would be fulfilled in the coming of Christ. And it was on the cross that the full wrath of that great and final day of the Lord was brought into history and unloaded upon the Savior. The great judgment of the day of the Lord fell in that day upon his shoulders so that all of the sins of all of those who believed in him were prejudged. The, the day of the Lord is already passed, as it were, for us. Amen? The, the, the wrath of God no longer abides upon those who are in Christ and only upon those who are in Christ, but they are free from any fearful judgment upon that great day. Not for anything good in themselves, but for the glory and the righteousness and the sacrifice of the Lord Jesus Christ on their behalf. The day is coming. Repent now. Look to Christ. Or face the day of the Lord alone. Uh, under the righteous judgment of God. So, friend, beware of the deceitfulness of sin. If you're a Christian, beware of becoming hardened. Beware of in the end, proving to be an unbeliever like so much of Israel. There is a day of reaping that is coming. So not to the flesh, but so to the Spirit. And from the Spirit you will reap life everlasting. So let us persevere in confessing our faith. Let us consider how to love one another, and stir one another up to good works. Let us not neglect to meet together, as is the habit of so many. But let us encourage one another. And all the more, as we see the day approaching. Our Father in heaven, we do pray, now that this word would have its good effect in us. Pull back from the brink, please, O oh God, any who is on the verge of becoming hardened in sin. Be gracious to us for the sake of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. With heads bowed and eyes closed, would you take a moment to consider your heart and consider what will be coming Look to the Lord Jesus right now. Friend, whatever, whatever your situation, look to Him in repentant faith. Call out to Him right now in this very moment. Say, Lord Jesus, I'm a sinner. My hope is in You. My hope and confidence is in You and in no other. Lord, save me in that day.